0: found your way to Renegade Files, your entertainment and information home for all things weird, unexplained, and mysterious beyond belief. Thanks for tuning into the show. This is going to be quite a ride. I'm your fearless host, Lex Gordon, transmitting from the Jungle Villa Outpost. We are in the midst of a torrential downpour here deep in the uncharted tropics, so if you hear rain and thunder... Just consider it free sound effects and a tribute to the rainy days of Seattle, where today's show takes us. This is Renegade Files episode number 10, The Death of Kurt Cobain. In the early 1990s, the music industry was poised to change, but it hadn't truly changed yet. Consumption of music was in the middle of transitioning from the analog world of vinyl to the digital world of CDs, with the portable but inferior to both magnetic cassette tape bridging the gap. At the same time, the previous decade of music had stripped out the soul of rock and roll in favor of cookie-cutter tunes that were commercially viable, fit into FM radio time slots, and could be performed by hairsprayed, spandexed pseudo-bad boys who looked edgy on album covers but through hissy fits when their private jets between gigs did not have bowls of hand-separated all-green M&Ms and melted polar ice cap drinking water grunge emerged as a direct response to the bland corporate rock machine of the 80s and was fueled by the exceedingly high profit margin of plastic CDs grunge was a reaction against the glamour of the hair bands it lacked the clear political statements of punk was void of the positive solutions of the 60s and 70s, and, as such, had a very wide appeal across Generation X who were content to complain. And let me be perfectly clear and say that there is absolute value in the American town crier tradition of pointing out injustices or problems before you, personally, have an infallible solution. This is how conversations are started, and it's how we recognize issues and work together to fix things that we can, and support each other when issues we can't fix are inevitable. Grunge was arguably the first truly new musical style to emerge in the U.S. since rap, and it came from genuine creativity, soul, and as a reaction to a huge music industry that had systematically removed those things from their products. Kurt Cobain and Nirvana emerged to become the kings of grunge, and their music and lyrics make up some of the best music released in generations. But, in the end, Kurt Cobain met with a tragic end, and regardless of how you interpret his last days, he gave us everything he had, and I'm grateful for what he did while he was with us. On this episode of Renegade Files, we'll look into the facts, the timeline, and the cast of characters involved with the sad death of a creative, talented, and very troubled person. Come with me as we dig through the evidence associated with the loss of a pioneering musician and songwriter whose band rescued the nation from corporate 80s hair band glam and became the voice of a generation looking for musical authenticity and lyrical relatability. Much like a hotel room on a grunge band tour stop, this entire case is just a mess. But, together, we will align the details which paint a very different picture than the sanitized, neatly produced package given to us from the 90s news on MTV, or, as Kurt Cobain called it, Empty TV. I'm glad to have you along as my co-investigator, so let's get into The Death of Kurt Cobain. Part one, a shift of format. In the early 1990s, the music industry was in the process of changing the way it sold music to the masses. In order to do this, they had to convince people that the new media was better because not only would you have to replace all of your treasured records or cassettes, you would have to buy new players and various gizmos to let you play the new form factor in your old car stereo, and there was a few years there where everything was up in the air. The music industry wanted to replace the labor-intensive production process of making vinyl with the streamlined, computerized methods of cranking out CDs. Vinyl records reproduce sound in a far superior way to digital CDs in two ways. Vinyl delivers a wider range of sound, lower lows, and higher highs, and it does so by recording and playing back an actual analog waveform which, over time, is soothing to listen to. Digital audio, on the other hand, records and plays a much more compressed sound, and will always deliver to your ears a series of sound clips with gaps in between them. This is called bitrate. The higher the bitrate, the more sound clips within a period of time, usually a second, So, bits per second is the resolution of the sound. But, no matter how high that digital resolution is, your mind must still employ its imagination to fill in these sound gaps, so that, over time, listening to digital music becomes an effort, if even only on a subconscious level. However, digital music does come with advantages. It maintains a cleaner, more clinical sound when compared to a poorly cared for record. Entire recording, editing, and production facilities that used to occupy extensive outboard gear and multiple rooms can now be housed in a laptop. And today, widespread distribution over the internet lets independent musicians build a fan base from their bedrooms. But in 1994, the delivery infrastructure and bandwidth to do that was not available, so we still had to purchase media on a physical form factor product and pay for the privilege of a lower quality sound by buying CDs. The irony is that CDs were marketed to everyone as being of a superior sound quality and to this day, many people will still tell you that CDs sound way better than records, although this is simply not sonically true. Listen to your favorite song through good speakers on a CD or a streaming app. Then listen to the same song played on vinyl through an analog preamp and you will hear notes and tones and a wider depth To such a degree that you might think you are listening to two different versions of the same song. So why then, if records sound so much better than CDs, did the music production industry shift from one to the other? The answer? Money. The fact is that CDs are far cheaper to duplicate on a large scale. Kurt Cobain and his band Nirvana eventually signed with Geffen Records in the middle of this digital format transformation. And, since CDs were so much cheaper to duplicate, mass-produce, store, and ship, but at the same time carried a higher price tag than vinyl records at the time, the profits of the labels and their successful bands skyrocketed someone like kurt cobain who was far more interested in music and art than money and fame found himself a multi-millionaire rock star in a greedy soulless industry that he loathed and perhaps hated more than anyone else and this brings up a short side note from one of my personal memories in those days you would go into an actual record store and pour over the newest cds listen to whatever the people working in the store were playing ask them about albums, and take a good deal of time and consideration before buying a CD album. One common question record store clerks would get over and over regarding a new CD that had a popular song on it was, yeah, but what about the rest of the album? Because no one wanted to pay for one good song and get seven or eight crappy songs made just to fill up the CD and sell it. In a really interesting way, this became an incentive for bands to produce high-quality albums filled with the best songs they could create because, in the long run, they knew that that would sell more CDs. And have you ever watched a music award show like the Grammys or the CMAs and wondered, why is it the same 7 or 8 albums and their songs that are nominated over and over throughout the whole show? Well... That's because those are the albums upon which the record labels have spent the most money promoting, but have yet to return their expected revenue. So, those so-called music award shows are simply long infomercials produced to increase record sales on the most poorly performing products relative to their production costs for that given year. And one final note to my personal recollection of the music format transition of the 90s is this. I remember that before CDs came out, cassette tape albums cost about $4.99. And for a while, there was only a very small section of CD albums in the stores, and they were comparatively expensive, about $16 each. As soon as the majority of labels had CDs for sale in the music stores, overnight the prices of cassette albums quadrupled, and now the cassette albums were also $16. So you know the record labels were making millions selling cassettes at $4.99, and now they were selling CDs at four times that. And retooling aside, CDs are way faster and cheaper to make, so you see what was happening here. Money flooding in for the labels and in turn, their top bands. Amid all of this music-media type conversion, the music scene was also changing in fundamental ways. We were pre-totally manufactured pop star, but post-corporate glam rock. Grunge was a reaction to the polished, heavily orchestrated, commercially viable music of the 1980s. But since grunge emerged at the peak of CD album adoption, the genre became extremely lucrative. Grunge was a brand new sound with brand new bands and albums. People might not buy an AC/DC Back in Black CD because they already had that album on vinyl or cassette but those same people would buy Nevermind by Nirvana on a CD because it had just came out. It is very possible that Nirvana's Nevermind was one of the first CDs that literally millions of people ever bought. So the combination of a new musical genre and the profitability of CDs printed multi-millionaires, which instantly led to more corporate versions of that style, and it must have seemed to Kurt Cobain and others like him that there was no way to be both a successful musician and an underground artist. Maybe if Kurt Cobain was coming up today, he could withdraw into his bedroom studio, stream live shows, release his own albums in his own ways, and create on his own terms. But in the mid-90s, that was still impossible. And even today, as romantic as it sounds, making a living doing that is far easier said than done. Part 2. The Detective and the Femme Fatale Like a film noir detective movie, private detective Tom Grant received an unusual phone call on Easter Sunday in 1994 from a distressed wife. She said she wanted to hire the detective to find out who was using her husband's stolen credit card, and she asked him to meet her at a swanky hotel in Beverly Hills. The scene he walked into was complete with a blonde femme fatale wearing a see-through negligee, smoking cigarettes, and telling lies. The first thing she said to him was that if he mentioned anything about the meeting to the press, she would sue him. Tom Grant soon learned that the woman was Courtney Love and her husband was Kurt Cobain. In the hotel room, Courtney Love told Tom Grant that the credit card had not really been stolen, but that she had canceled it and wanted him to find Kurt through tracking his failed attempts at using it. She said she had canceled the card so Kurt could not get money because he was supposed to be in rehab and she didn't want him to be able to get drugs. This story was relayed to Detective Tom Grant in the hotel room that Grant had come to find out was set up as a celebrity detox retreat where drug-addicted stars could lock themselves away to get clean over a weekend or so. As Courtney Love relayed this tale to Grant, a second woman arrived who Courtney introduced as her drug dealer. According to Grant, on nearly every occasion that he dealt personally with Courtney Love, she was either taking drugs, high on drugs, or buying drugs. By the end of the meeting, Love had hired Grant to find Cobain, who she kept insisting was both missing and suicidal. Detective Grant immediately realized that he was dealing with a bizarre case where the person hiring him had, in their first day communicating, lied about a stolen credit card, admitted that lie, and threatened to sue him. While leaving this first meeting, Grant told his investigative partner that from that moment on, they were going to record everything that was done and said throughout this investigation. The story Grant tells, and which is backed up by his numerous audio recordings and notes, is extremely convoluted and bizarre. He tells of Courtney Love orchestrating planted letters positioned to make it look as if Kurt had been in his house when he had not, Of her finding another letter from Kurt at 9am in a location where no letter had existed that same morning at 2am. Tales of Courtney in her own words planning false stories of her own overdose and arrest in the news to try to get Kurt to respond in some way. And to stimulate record sales through sympathy in the press. And paranoid stories of Courtney's fears that Kurt was having an affair with the female bass player in her band, Hole. According to documents written by Cobain and conversations he had with his lawyer, Kurt Cobain was in the process of divorcing Courtney Love. At the same time, he had grown disenchanted with the music business and was refusing to headline the Lollapalooza tour, which was a decision that would cause him to default upon and lose compensation on a $9.5 million contract. He had expressed his intention to his lawyer to remove Courtney Love completely from his will, which, at the time, named her and his daughter as the beneficiaries of his estate, with Courtney's name being on all of the couple's property and accounts. Removing Courtney Love from his will and divorcing her in light of her drug addiction and alleged infidelities had the potential to cut her out of financial assets and incomes worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And this is where things get convoluted. Knowing Kurt was planning to cut her out of the will and the estate and divorce her, as well as, if not quitting touring, drastically scaling back his music business production and touring schedules, Courtney arranged what she called a drug addiction intervention, where a number of people confronted Kurt to usher him into rehab, which, in the final analysis, may have been something that he needed. However, rather than a heartfelt group of close friends and relatives, this intervention consisted mainly of record label executives, managers, and Dylan Carson, who was Kurt's close friend, but was also the main person with whom Kurt did heroin. It seems like this intervention was much more about convincing Kurt to keep the business of Nirvana touring and contract execution going than saving him from drug abuse, but we will never really know. What we do know is the timeline of events which occurred after this intervention meeting in Kurt Cobain's Seattle home. On March 26, 1994, Courtney Love left Seattle for the Peninsula Hotel in Beverly Hills where she would soon meet with private detective Tom Grant. On March 30th, Kurt and his friend Dylan Carson bought a shotgun in Dylan's name for Kurt to use for protection in his house. He was concerned with possible intruders and he knew that quitting the Lollapalooza tour was going to upset many powerful people and cause them to lose a great deal of money. The shotgun was a Remington Model 11 20 gauge, which is a gun typically used for dove hunting or shooting small games such as rabbits. This gun is often recommended for home defense because the gun is not powerful enough to shoot through a wall and kill someone in another room if you do have to fire it indoors at an armed intruder. Kurt hid the gun in his home, then checked into the rehab center in Marina del Rey, California, near Los Angeles. This was a self-admitted rehab clinic, and patients were permitted to come and go as they pleased. On April 1st, 13 phone calls were made from Courtney's Beverly Hills hotel room to the rehab center, and Kurt left the center that evening. A hired driver dropped Cobain off at his Seattle home early Saturday morning the next day. That Saturday night, Courtney Love planted a fake story with the Associated Press that she had overdosed and was in the hospital. On Sunday, April 3rd, Courtney first called private detective Tom Grant, met him in her hotel room, and among the things she told him were that she had lied to him and the credit card company about the credit card being stolen, that Kurt wanted a divorce, that he was foolishly walking away from $9.5 million, that her name was on all of the houses and assets, that she didn't know where Kurt was, and she essentially hired Grant to watch a drug dealer's house in case Kurt turned up there because, according to her, he was missing since he had left rehab two days prior. On Monday, April 4th, Grant once again met with Courtney Love at the hotel, where she told him that she, pretending to be Kurt's mother, had called in a missing persons report to the Seattle police. The next two days seem like Love giving Grant the runaround as she tells him she doesn't want Kurt to know she's looking for him, then she has Grant stake out hotels, tells him an alias Kurt uses, then when Grant finds someone under that name in a hotel, Love tells him that she called the hotel and talked to the person and that it wasn't Kurt, which is an odd thing to do if she doesn't want him to know she's looking for him. By Wednesday, April 6, Kurt was still missing. Courtney then sent Grant to Seattle to search the Cobain home for Kurt. She had previously told Grant she didn't trust their male nanny, Callie, who lived at the Seattle house, and that he might warn Kurt that Courtney was searching for him. Incidentally, Callie was Courtney Love's former boyfriend. Courtney reiterated to Grant that she didn't want anyone to know he was going to Seattle to look for Kurt, but before he left to do so, Courtney called Callie, the male nanny, to tell him Grant was coming to do just that, at which time she told Grant that Callie wouldn't tell anyone. This is immediately after telling Grant that she could not trust Callie to not tell Kurt she was looking for him. Detective Grant went to Seattle, teamed up with Kurt's best friend Dylan Carlson, and together they set out to find Kurt. According to Grant, Dylan said that Kurt was not at all suicidal, and that rumors of Kurt's suicide attempt in Rome previously were total lies. One very shrewd observation made by Grant was that Dylan was Kurt's best friend, and if he thought Kurt was suicidal, he would never help him buy a shotgun. At least you would think he wouldn't. On Thursday morning at 2:15 a.m., Tom Grant and Dylan went to Cobain's home. Dylan knocked and said no one was home. They then called Courtney, who was with Kurt's entertainment lawyer, Rosemary Carroll, in Los Angeles. Dylan had Courtney call the alarm company and turn the alarm off. Then Dylan and Grant went into the house. Dylan remarked that he had never seen the house as clean. They found one TV on in Callie the Nanny's room, but no one there and no Kurt Cobain to be found. At this time, Dylan did not mention, and the two men did not search, the room above the detached garage where Kurt's body would later be found. They refer to this room as the greenhouse, but a more accurate description for that type of room would be a carriage house. It was basically an empty tiled floor room with a side staircase leading to a landing and doors on the back of the building and French doors to a small balcony with no external stairs to it which faced the driveway and the parking plaza of a large home so it's like a room above the garage. Throughout that night, Dylan and Grant spoke to Courtney, who may or may not have been arrested at this time, and who asked the two to return to the house to find the shotgun Kurt had stashed in their closet. Grant wondered why, since Callie had been there the entire time, and if Courtney was so worried about Kurt being suicidal with a gun in the house, had she not asked Callie to get it sooner. When Grant and Dylan returned to the house this time, they found a note from Callie written to Kurt and placed on the stairs. The note said Callie could not believe Kurt had been able to come into the house without his knowing, and it accused Kurt of being insensitive for not calling Courtney, and this description is my paraphrasing of the note in so many and less profane words. Grant later said, and Cobain's lawyer, Rosemary Carroll, agreed in a taped phone conversation that the wording of that note sounded phony and that they both felt it was planted there for Grant to find and not for Kurt. That afternoon, Callie left for Los Angeles with Kurt and Courtney's daughter to take her to her mother and while Grant never saw or spoke to Callie while he was in Seattle searching in the house, Callie later claimed that he had hardly been in the house at all the entire time. This caused Grant to wonder why, then, in the note supposedly left for Kurt, was Callie so surprised that Kurt could have been in the house without Callie knowing if Callie himself had hardly been there at all from Monday through Thursday. Grant said he had the feeling that Callie was avoiding him. After Detective Tom Grant and Kurt's best friend Dylan had searched Cobain's Seattle home on two separate occasions at the behest of Courtney Love and both times failed to find any sign of Kurt Cobain, And the reason Grant took Dylan along was that Dylan knew the house and had been in it multiple times. And they were searching for a guy who had been missing for multiple days, who was, according to his wife, suicidal, but, according to his best friend, not so. So after looking for Kurt twice in his home, and both times, Dylan, who knew the property well, failed to either direct Tom Grant to, or look himself in, the greenhouse, which is the carriage house above the garage. Courtney Love called an electrician and asked him to do some work on their home. She specifically requested that the electricians inspect and repair, if need be, the security alarm motion detectors in the so-called greenhouse. When the electrician arrived to do so, he found Kurt Cobain lying inside the otherwise empty room. A single wooden stool was near the far French doors, and Cobain was on the tiled floor, on his back, and he was not sleeping. This electrician then made two phone calls. The first was to the Seattle Police Department to report his discovery. The second was to MTV to do the same. By the time the police arrived, the house was already a media circus. What follows as far as events surrounding the actions of Courtney Love, the detective, Tom Grant, the police investigations, and the various other characters in this tragedy are so convoluted that they make what we have learned so far seem downright logical and orderly. If you want to look into this story more, I'll help you with tons of links and even a way you can watch a well-financed and professionally produced documentary about the events for free later in the episode, so stay tuned. Regardless of exactly what happened to Kurt Cobain in his last days, the world lost a talented, original, creative, and empathetic artist and person, and a young girl lost her father. Kurt's daughter Frances is now older than her father was when he died. And while her life has consisted of a rare combination of both extreme difficulties and extreme luxuries, she seems to be a smart, compassionate, caring person. I send her wishes of peace. Part 3. Inside the Greenhouse Like many people, when I first heard the news reports of Kurt Cobain's death and for a long time after that, I assumed that the greenhouse everyone kept mentioning was just that. I pictured Kurt in a steamy glass outbuilding with ferns, dripping misters, and moss between the bricks. But as I mentioned earlier, the structure referred to as the greenhouse by Kurt's family and friends, then in turn by Kurt Loader on MTV News and the rest of the media, was actually a carriage house above the garage at Kurt and Courtney's wooded Seattle estate. If we look at Kurt's death as a suicide, there's a lengthy and logical list of circumstances which easily support that conclusion. At the same time, if we consider that it could have been a murder made to look like a suicide, we find an equally long outline of compelling factors to support that idea. This is a very odd situation in the realm of conspiracy theories, and I'm over-defending the literal value of that term, so hear it as you will. The point is that in many cases where logic and facts fail to coincide with the mainstream narrative, the official story is so baseless and frail, and the alternative facts are so lengthy and compelling, the very fact anyone believes the establishment's position strains one's faith in humanity. The assassination of JFK by Lee Harvey Oswald acting alone is the quintessential example of this. The suspicious death of Kurt Cobain, however, is not so readily obvious. The details which point to foul play are somewhat subtle, and require a small amount of critical thinking and the ability to hold just a few facts in your mind at once in order to see how their interoperability make it unlikely that the official conclusion is foolproof. So, real quick, let's go over those facts that would indicate that Kurt did kill himself, and... After looking at all of the complex madness in this case, I will say that is a total possibility. However extreme the several actions are that would have to have taken place to make suicide the reality here, because this entire story is decorated with behavioral extremes and outlandish claims. That's the territory we're in. So, what would make the Seattle Police Department conclude that Kurt killed himself? He was a heroin addict. He was a mentally tortured, depressed, angry artist. He wrote a song called, I Hate Myself and I Want to Die. He had been missing for a few days after leaving a rehab clinic. He was found dead holding a shotgun and he had a shotgun wound to his head. He had heroin and other drugs in his system. He left a note that said, among other things, that his daughter would be better off without him. Handwriting experts concluded that he had written the note. He was inside an essentially unused room on his property and the door was locked. Tell all of those things and maybe a few other suicidal anecdotes to the average person or even the ardent fan through a newscast and almost anyone would say, well, that's that. But this story is never quite so clear-cut. So, let's look at the improbabilities that cast doubt upon this official conclusion of suicide. Kurt was dissatisfied with the music industry, and he lacked the love for the crowds and adoration for his fans that drives other rock stars to persevere, and he was consciously disturbed by that fact. He was grateful for all he had been given by his fans and his musical career, but he was unable to feel joy for the process it had become. He could not fake that joy just to keep making money. He had walked out on the Lollapalooza tour as the headliner, which was a decision that would cost him, and by extension his wife, nine and a half million dollars. He had told his lawyer, who is also Courtney Love's lawyer, that he wanted a divorce and that he wanted to remove Courtney entirely from his will. Courtney then told this same lawyer that she wanted her to find, for Courtney, the most vicious divorce attorney available. Kurt's blood contained 1.52 milligrams per liter of morphine, which is the metabolite of heroin once it passes through the liver. In order to have a blood level this high, he would have had to inject 225 milligrams of heroin, which some say is a beyond lethal dose, while others contend that opiate tolerances among heavy users and addicts can rise to very high levels. And here is your Renegade Files public service announcement. Opiate tolerance levels rise with continual use, but then fall rapidly when use is discontinued. So... Someone who uses high amounts of heroin for a while, then stops because they are trying to quit, then goes back for one last dose, and uses the amount they were previously used to, can instantly die. That is how you overdose on heroin. The argument is that Kurt had injected so much heroin that he would have been unable to shoot himself because he would have been incapacitated almost immediately. One Seattle Police Department detective said, I believe he gave himself a fatal dose of black tar heroin, and I don't think I've seen anybody with an overdose that had that much heroin in him. Furthermore, after injecting an amount of heroin that the police detectives say would have been fatal, Kurt then rolled his sleeves back down, buttoned his cuffs, packed his syringe, lighter, remaining heroin, and other paraphernalia perfectly back into his cigar box stash kit, then shot himself in the head with a full length 10 pound shotgun made for bird hunting. Now it isn't impossible to shoot yourself with a shotgun, Ernest Hemingway did it, but it's unusual at best and awkward and difficult at least. And the ejected shotgun shell was found on the opposite side of Kurt's body from the ejector slide door on the far side of the shotgun. So the shell would have been kicked out to one side from the gun if it was shot the way he was holding it, but that shell was found on the opposite side of the room. The police claimed that the doors to the greenhouse were barricaded with a stool. But the room was otherwise empty, and that stool was at the far end of the room near the French doors that led to the outside balcony, which had no staircase to them. So, the police claim that the door was barricaded by the stool is false. The doors into the room from the staircase landing on the other end, which is the end where Kurt was found, were locked. The police made a point of reporting and recording that those doors were locked from the inside. But the lock in question was a simple doorknob center twist mechanism that could have been twisted to the locked position, then the door pulled closed from the outside. And according to Tom Grant, and supported by his many recorded telephone conversations, we get the convoluted story of Courtney Love's behavior and alleged actions during the time between when Kurt left the rehab center and was found dead in the greenhouse. Here is just some of that tale. Courtney Love was in Beverly Hills at a self-appointed detox hotel room from which she called private investigator Tom Grant and lied to him saying that she wanted him to find out who was using her husband's credit card. She had her meet him at this hotel where she told him the credit card story had been a lie and that she had canceled the card and wanted to hire him to find out who was trying to use the card and where and to look for Kurt who she said was missing. Courtney pretended to be Kurt's mother, called the police, and filed a missing persons report for Kurt under his mother's name. Courtney planted a fake story with the Associated Press saying that she had overdosed and been arrested when she had not. She directed Tom Grant to meet with Kurt's friend Dylan Carson in Seattle and search her and Kurt's home to try to find Kurt. They searched the home two times. Grant later learned that Courtney had told Dylan to remember to look in the greenhouse, but he failed to even mention that building or room to Tom Grant on either occasion they were at the house looking for Kurt. A male live-in nanny, Callie, was at the house during all of this and could have presumably looked for Kurt more easily than this out-of-town detective who Courtney sent to do so twice. On April 7th, the day before Kurt was found, the nanny Callie left for L.A. With Kurt still missing and days passing, Courtney, remaining in Beverly Hills and or L.A. this entire time, hired an electrical company to inspect the motion detectors and security system of the Seattle Homes Greenhouse. When the electrician arrived to do the work, he discovered Kurt Cobain and authorities said Kurt had been dead there for at least two days. Courtney had frequently and vocally lamented that Kurt wanted a divorce and was suspicious that he was having an affair with her band's bass player, Kristen Pfaff. Kristen, also 27, like Kurt, and a long list of other musicians who met death at that age, died of an alleged drug overdose just two months after Kurt, in her bathtub, after deciding to leave Courtney Love's band, and with a U-Haul packed with all of her belongings parked outside on the street. Eldon Hoke, known as El Deuce and the bass player for the band The Mentors, said in a videotaped interview that Courtney Love offered him, in his words, 50 grand to whack Kurt Cobain, to blow his head off and make it look like a suicide. Eldon Hoke says that he refused, but that he wishes he had taken the money, and he knows who did it. Two days after that interview, Hoke was found dead, apparently run over by a train with no witnesses. My summary. This is a tough one for sure. It seems like every time a musician that people love dies, people cry foul play because they can't believe that their hero would kill themselves, overdose, or die in some other sad but self-inflicted way. I like much of Nirvana's music, but I wouldn't be considered a huge fan by any definition. I liked watching the MTV Unplugged episode of Nirvana and as I understand it, that was one of their last public performances. As you watch it, you see and hear Kurt being totally off in his own world. The band asks him questions and he tunes them out and then asks them something that makes you realize he wasn't listening to whatever they were saying. He's frustrated, he seems beyond distant and generally annoyed. But when they do play, his voice and those songs are amazing. Courtney Love perfectly fits the bill of a crazy, overly dramatic troublemaker who manipulated people, the press, and the police to generate publicity and to get whatever it was she wanted for reasons that are as confusing as they are unnecessary. And I'm no handwriting expert, but Kurt's suicide note reads more like a letter to his fans asking forgiveness for maybe leaving Nirvana and at least scaling back his public performances, and it looks like the entire note is written in small letters in neat, although sloping rows. The note is signed, Peace, Love, Empathy. Kurt Cobain. Then, below that, in much bigger, more scribbled letters, are the last four lines that say... Please keep going, Courtney. For Frances, for her life, which will be so much happier without me. I love you, I love you. And Kurt and Courtney's entertainment lawyer found a backpack that Courtney left in her office, and inside it were pages of Kurt's writing, along with other pages of specific letters of the alphabet being practiced on that page over and over. I mean, it all seems a bit much. It is possible that all of these circumstantial things and actions and statements are just coincidences after the fact and that Kurt Cobain was able to tolerate a hero's dose of heroin and was so depressed by not being able to feel the love of his fans and was so disgusted with the entertainment industry and a hundred other things that he got fully wasted on heroin and shot himself. In the end, we're dealing with a heroin addict, millionaire, whining, complaining, overly empathetic, tortured, legitimately depressed, antisocial Gen X rock star whose biggest pragmatic hardship was being paid millions upon millions of dollars to make songs. And I actually like the guy. I wish he could have thought things through and done something to save himself, whether that was moving to an island away from his crazy wife if he was killed, or getting somewhat clean and sober enough to value his own life for the sake of himself and his daughter if he did kill himself. Kurt Cobain was a prolific writer. Creative, yes, but an even more accurate description, in my humble opinion, would be unrestrained. He poured it out. As you read through his lyrics, you get the feeling that it's pure stream of consciousness and that he just unabashedly opened up his emotions and recorded it as it came out. When artists do this, they tap into the energy that creates worlds. But... Opening yourself up like that can also open the door to demons if you are not cautious, prepared, and diligent with your mental hygiene. If you have serious issues that plague your psyche and your memories and the way you look at yourself and the world around you, and you use heavy drugs to try to alleviate both physical and mental pain, and you are also a hyper-creative artist who has very few peers on your level, and then you find yourself with $100 million in the bank, and a million dollar deposits posting in your bank every time you look? I mean, really? When you make decisions that cost others tens of millions in lost income, and you have a drug-addicted wife motivated by money and jealous of infidelity who is prone to filing false police and media reports, and you write songs about suicide and then end up the way Kurt did, it seems like he was doomed either way. I can understand a sensitive, super creative person growing sick of the corporate machine he was indentured to, and people who have lived through years of depression, anger, and heavy hard drug use tend to not make the best decisions, particularly when they are on a potentially lethal dose of one of the most hateful drugs ever created. I hate to be so back and forth on what I think about this case, but I'm just being honest. It's a train wreck to say the least look into this case through the research i'll put in the dark intel files on our patreon page and see if you can make any more sense out of it you can leave comments there and i'd love to hear what you think of it as well i'll also put a link where you can watch the documentary called soaked in bleach which is all about this story albeit in a very dramatic way and you can watch that story for free with ads you can find it yourself on amazon too if you want to look Regardless of what really happened to Kurt Cobain, we should all treasure every day we have. I think that might be the message here. In Kurt's words from the song The Man Who Sold the World, I laughed and shook his hand and made my way back home. I searched for foreign land. For years and years I roamed. I gazed a gaisley stare. We walked a million miles. I must have died alone a long, long time ago. Stay wild, loner child.